Barnes is a neat place. They've got, um, my favorite thing is when you go in the little shop at the front, they've got all kinds of delicious foods that have been made from, from fresh farm stuff. So I like checking that out. They got honey, they got different jams and jellies and snacks and homemade ice cream. It's really neat uh, if you go. Not to forgive my cough drop, I'm trying to prevent coughing and distracting you. Um, <clears throat> but the reason that Emily and I and Margaret went was the animals, that they have a little petting zoo out back, and they rotate animals from a, a functioning farm into sunny day so that kids can go and they can see real-life farm animals. Well, Margaret wanted to, well, Mar- I don't know that Margaret wanted to go, but we wanted to take her. Um, and she's got all these little animal books she can look at and if you ask her you go this market this is a cow cow what sounds a cow make moo you know she knows she knows what a cow looks like she knows what a cow sounds like but until we took her to sunny day farm she had never actually seen a cow and when you look at the book you know you, you got an 18 month old you know she's about you know yay high and the books are all like this and so a cow in her mind, has never been bigger than about that big. And she, you know, she's so excited about cows and moo-moos, and we told her, we're going to go see a cow. Cow! Yeah, we're going to go see a real-life cow. And we got there, and she's so excited, and we took her out there, and she saw the cow. And I've got a picture and a video on my phone of the closer Emily's getting to the cow, carrying Margaret. Margaret's doing this. <laughs> you know, she's... She didn't want anything to do with the cow. We're like, do you want to, t- you want to pet the cow? Well, why? Because you've got this book that you've seen this cow in, and, and, and the book is smaller than you, right? Even at a small age, the book is smaller than you. So what you see in it appears to be smaller than you. But when you come face to face with the real thing, sometimes it outstrips your imagination, doesn't it? Well, that's exactly what happens to John in verses 9 through 20 of Revelation chapter 1. That John's met Jesus before. He walked around with Jesus for three years of his earthly ministry. But Jesus in his earthly ministry, his incarnation, is what some of the old comments, what John Calvin called baby talk. That the incarnation was God's baby talk. That if God had appeared to us in the fullness of His glory from the get-go, we wouldn't have known what to do with it. So what God did was He sent His Son Jesus to take on human flesh and dwell with us and live with us and be with us in a way that we could understand. Still fully God, but yet also fully man. And we could learn from Him and we could relate to Him and we could... Uh, enjoy time with him without falling on our face terrified that we were going to die. Because that's what everybody else in Scripture does when they come face to face with God. Go back and look. But John, in chapter 1 of Revelation, sees Christ in his glory, and it completely undoes him. So today, what I want us to do is I want us to take stock of how we think about Jesus. How we think about God. Whether or not we give Him in our mind and in our heart the glory that He is due, or if we just, whether or not we mean to, we make Him smaller than He is because the, the book itself is smaller than us 
and we forget that the real thing is a lot bigger than the, the relaying of it. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand this and greatly appreciate you and who you are as a result of it and leave here living differently. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So let's talk about what it means to have appropriate awe. Um, what is awe? Awe is the root of the English word awful. All awful means is something that is full of awe. And awful has kind of taken on the connotation now of a negative, right? When you're sick, you say, how do you, I feel awful. Well, if you go back and you read older English, it actually maintains its original meaning, which is something that is full of awe. That sometimes you'll have a mountain described as awful. Why? Because it's huge. It's full of awe. That when you see it, it dwarfs you. Um, that when you stand, do any of you remember, maybe not the first time, but as a little child, the first time you stood beside the ocean? Do you ever remember that? Or maybe not even the first time, but maybe the first, the first time you remember noticing when you went to the beach how big the ocean is. You ever remember that? Having thoughts like that? That when you stand beside something that is so much bigger than yourself, you don't just notice how big it is. You notice what else? How small you are. You notice how little you are. And it is my concern, not just as a pastor of Stapleton Baptist, but as a Christian, that sometimes we shortchange God on the awe we have toward Him. That familiarity, you've heard, breeds contempt, but sometimes familiarity is just bad all by itself. That we've been blessed 
with having God's Word and for most of us having a relationship with Jesus Christ for so long that we've just gotten familiar with Him. That, that we lose the awe that we have of who He is and what He's done. Because y'all, if John can be shocked by coming into contact with the risen glorified Christ, we ought to be shocked by coming into contact with the risen glorified Christ. Because I feel like John has spent a little bit more time with him in person than we have. You know? So, I want us to talk about three ways this morning we ought to be seeking God's presence. Three ways we ought to be reacting to God's presence. And the first is, I want to ask, do you actively seek God's presence? Um, that, that church and the Christian life should not be a spectator sport. That you don't come here to watch what happens up on this stage. It's not a performance. The music is not a performance. The preaching is not a performance. If it ever becomes a performance, then what you have is no longer a church, it's a musical. That worship is not a spectator sport. It's, it's supposed to be participatory. That when you come here... You should be seeking actively God's presence. That when you come here, you should be saying, Jesus, I'm looking for you to act today. I'm looking for you to teach me something today. I'm looking to encounter you today. And that should be the same thing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as well. Do you actively seek God's presence? So look at verse 9. John says, I, John... Both your brother and companion. Then he lists three things. He says, in the tribulation and kingdom <coughs> and patience of Jesus Christ. So the tribulation of Jesus Christ. I mean, <clears throat> we, we throw around the words trials and tribulations now so much that they've almost lost their meanings. Tribulation is a great period of suffering. That John was no stranger to persecution that the rest of the church was experiencing. He was actually experiencing at that very moment while he was on Patmos. Patmos was not a vacation resort. He had not gone to Patmos for rest and relaxation. He had gone to Patmos because he was in exile for preaching Jesus. So he was effectively in, in solitary confinement prison on a wilderness island because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. So he very much understands the tribulation that the rest of the church is going through. <clears throat> the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He's a companion with the rest of the church in the kingdom of Christ. That this is the kingdom for which he is being persecuted. That he gives Jesus more allegiance and more deference than he gives to any human leader. And as such, the Roman government has exiled him. It is that allegiance to the kingdom that John maintains and that the rest of the church maintains that is drawing them into this tribulation. They're not going to let it go. John's saying, I'm your brother in that. And he's also saying, I am your brother in the patience of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't necessarily mean the patience that we have because Christ is giving us patience. This, I think, is John saying, I'm a brother with you in experiencing the patience that the Lord Jesus himself has. That when you go back and you look, uh, I would caution you, this is not on your handout, go back and look in Romans chapter 2. When Paul is talking to the church in Rome and he says, don't you guys understand that the reason that God has not executed judgment yet is because he is long-suffering and patient because he wants people to repent. 
that Jesus himself has patience. Well, that's a good thing, right? Aren't you glad that Jesus is patient with us? Thank you, Jesus, that you are patient with me. Because if he was not patient with me, I'd been a little cinder in the dirt a long time ago. I'm sure I'd be the only one. But, no, Jesus is patient. But the flip side of that patience of Jesus is that while he's giving people patience to, he's having patience on people for them to repent, what does that mean about the time being that we have to wait? That we've got to wait right now. Because for Jesus to have patience and give people a chance to repent, that means we still live in a world where sin is a thing. So John is saying, I understand your tribulation. I understand being maintaining allegiance to the kingdom while you're waiting on Jesus Christ to, to come into his kingdom on earth. I understand all of that. He's on Patmos for this. And he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now stop there for a second. Talk about actively seeking Jesus. Think about where John is. Think about how he got there. Have you ever had a Sunday morning? This isn't even a question. This is mainly just me bringing something back to your memory because I know you've all had it. You ever had a Sunday morning where you just woke up? I'm going to steal one from Phil. Where you just woke up and you really wanted to just go to Cotton Springs Baptist that morning. You just wanted to roll over and let Brother Bedside minister to you. You didn't want to get up. You didn't want to go anywhere because, man, it's cold outside. Or, man, I don't feel... And y'all listen. I'm not saying that if weather is a danger for you to travel, that you need to go out there and risk you like it. We'll call. We'll check on you. And if you're sick and it's hard for you to get out of the house, we get that too. But that morning where your sickness is, man, I wish I, 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 I'm about 15 minutes of sleep away from being well. <laughs> you just, there have been Sunday mornings that you wanted to get up and just say, I guess today is just not a day for me. I'm just going to have to, I, I'm going to pray and read my Bible and that's going to be my church this morning. I'm not going to get up and I'm not going to go because this morning is just a hard morning for me. Y'all, John was on an exile island in the middle of the Mediterranean for preaching about Jesus. And what's he doing on Sunday morning? There ain't nobody else out there to have church with him. And he can't go anywhere, so he's having church all on his own. He said, I'm in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, y'all, if that's not actively seeking the presence of God, I don't know what is. Jesus, I need to be with you. I want to be with you. I want to be with your people. I want to know who you are. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to be in your presence. <coughs> I'm actively seeking you. But John's on Patmos and John didn't throw in the towel on the very island for which he'd been, to which he'd been exiled for preaching Jesus. John is worshiping and despite being persecuted and exiled and punished while seeking God's face, guess, what's hap guess what happens? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, side note, while we're going through Revelation, you're going to hear things all throughout this book. Things like like and as. That's in, in English language, that's what's called a simile. 
That it's comparing something to something it is not, but that shares characteristics. John is not saying Jesus' voice sounded like a trumpet in the sense that it has the musical quality and tone that a trumpet had. What he's saying is, what does a trumpet do when you hear it? It gets your attention. It's piercing. It's cutting. You know, when I was in band, we used to have to tell the trumpet players, stop trying to be heroes. Because you'd have everybody else playing, and if you get three trumpets that decide they want to get heard, guess what? They'll out-volume everybody else that's on the field, and that'll be all you hear. That a trumpet can cut through. That you can't ignore it. And John said, I heard this voice that was loud and powerful, and it cut through, and I could not ignore it. And it was announcing something. It was a voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha Omega, and the first and the last. Some of you may not have that. Um, in your translation, the oldest manuscripts we've found don't have it, but the most numerous manuscripts we've found do. Saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So what's going on here? That John has been out on this island... And despite everything he's endured, he's still seeking the presence of God. And what happens when he seeks the presence of God? He finds it. He finds it. That he continues to worship, he continues to push, he continues to walk because he knows at the end of this road, Jesus promised, Matthew 7, 7 and 8, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Have you ever come to church and and just expected God to passively bless you? Just I'm just going to be here. It's going to be blessing by proximity. Have you ever had Sunday mornings where you just got up and went through the motions and then you walked out that back door when you were done and you said, I don't feel all that much different than I did when I got here? And have you had Sunday mornings when you woke up and you came to church and you, before you left, you said, Jesus, I need you today. I need to hear from you today. I need to worship you today. That everything else that has gone on in this week, the one thing I need is I need to push that out and I need to give you your time. Which Sunday do you think was more beneficial? The second one is, right? You know what makes the difference? Actively seeking the presence of God. Y'all, coming to church only goes so far. Engaging in seeking God's presence, that's where the power is. Heard somebody say one time, you can, go to, you can go to hell just as fast from a church pew as you can from a bar stool. There's nothing magic about being in this building. There's nothing magic about being with this group of people, though sometimes it feels like it. There's, there's, there's nothing... You know, you ever heard somebody say, don't lie in the church, don't run in the church? What's, difference, what's different between lying and running in the church and lying and running outside the church? Isn't God the same both places? The thing is, the reason people say that about this place is because this place is set aside for a specific activity, which is actively seeking the presence of God. 
Take special note when John heard from Jesus. When he was seeking him. God, if I, if I could just hear you, I would believe you. You got it backwards. If you'll believe him, you'll hear him. So do, do you actively seek the presence of God? And by the way, in Matthew 7, 7 and 8, those words seek and you will find in the word and he who seeks finds those are in the Greek present tense it doesn't mean you just look one time it means you look and you keep looking you knock and you keep knocking you ask and you keep asking that your Christian life your seeking of the presence of God should be something that goes on constantly no matter where you are no matter what your circumstances may be no matter how good or how bad no matter how easy no matter how hard things may get Actively seeking the presence of God should be as natural for a Christian as breathing. It's what makes us who we are. So actively seek the presence of God. And second, do you accurately seek God's presence? Now, verses 12 through 18. I'll tell you what one of my college professors told me one time. He said, listen fast. That we are given a large list of attributes of Jesus that John sees. And one of the commentaries I was reading actually said that if we tried to, to parse every single one of these and trace it back to his origin, it said, quote, it would be like trying to unweave the rainbow. That there's just way too much going on here to try and break down every single one of them. But at the very end, I'll go ahead and cheat and give you the point at the end of this. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. That's where this is going. So let's look at this list of stuff. So verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And the next thing we see is seven golden lampstands. We're going to hold off on the lampstands for a minute because Jesus explains that himself. So I don't have to. So we're going to hold off on the lampstands. One like the Son of Man. Now, this is directly from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I'm going to read 7, 13, and 14 to you. <coughs> and you've got those on your handout. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This, by the way, was Jesus' favorite title for himself throughout his earthly ministry. He called himself the Son of Man more than he called himself anything else. That he paints his ministry in light of, I am this messianic figure who was brought before my father, the ancient of days, and who owns the right to an everlasting kingdom which has no end. That that is the first thing that, that John says. When he saw this individual, his first thought was, that's got to be him. That's got to be him. One like a son of man. Uh, 
clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. This is actually from a commentary um, by Robert Mounts uh, on the book of Revelation. It says, The Greek word translated a robe reaching down to his feet only occurs here in the New Testament. But in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, which is the Old Testament translated into Greek, um, in every case but one, it refers to the attire of the high priest. So John sees Jesus as this messianic figure who is a king. He has a kingdom that has no end, but he's dressed like a priest. And not just a priest, but a high priest. And not with a woven band with gold in it, but with a golden band. That this is the high priest of all high priests. And he knew it immediately upon seeing it. That he's got a robe and a chest piece of gold. His hair is white like wool. This is also from Daniel 7. But if you go back and you read Daniel 7 verse 9, the hair white like wool is on the Ancient of Days. So now John's not just describing Jesus as the Messiah. He's describing Him as God. John is using multiple successive terms to describe Jesus that those with a background in Jewish Scripture would immediately recognize as terms indicative of the Messiah and God Himself. It says His eyes were like fire. Y'all, He did not say His eyes are fire. Please don't draw a comic book picture of Jesus in your head and draw little flickering flames as Jesus' eyes. That's not what's going on. But I do recall Jesus in His earthly ministry saying, the eyes are the lamp of the body. That that if if whatever the the inside is, that's what comes out of the the eyes. Have you ever been having a conversation with somebody and their eyes kind of glaze over and you say, you're not there, you're not listening. Why? Because their mind has gone somewhere else and their eyes betray that. So when... John looks at Jesus and he sees fiery eyes. What does that tell you? Jesus is intense. He's powerful. He's piercing. That John knew by looking at his eyes, this is, this is I, I'm dealing with somebody who's a big deal here. His feet are like refined brass. Um, there are several different translations of this. There's considerable confusion over what this word actually means. It's an odd construction, stability and strength, maybe, um, that, that Jesus' feet being like uh, bronze, even refined bronze from a furnace. Um, I'll tell you what your pastor thought immediately upon reading this. is that Revel- Have you noticed that Revelation and Daniel seem to have a lot of parallels thus far? Go back and read Daniel just in your own time for your own edification. There's actually a passage in Daniel. If you remember the giant statue that has clay feet and the feet were what were destroyed that made the statue fall, you're not knocking this over. This is stability. This is strength. This is permanence. And a voice like many waters. Well, I thought his voice was like a trumpet. Well, yeah. But John's saying something different here. Have you ever stood beside a waterfall or beside a loud water? 
It's scary as all get out, isn't it? It's loud. It's powerful. That's why at Niagara, they put the signs up. They're like, hey, please don't walk beyond this at any point because if you get your foot in that water, it's going to suck you out and there's nothing we can do for you. And it's just this loud roar. And you watch videos at Niagara and they're talking to each other like this because they have to scream because the water is so powerful. That Jesus' voice is like rushing waters. That when Jesus speaks, He drowns everything else out. That nobody talks over Jesus. He is immediately dominant. And not only is He strong and powerful, His voice is also like a trumpet. It pierces. That that power and that volume and that strength is unavoidable. And when He speaks, you listen. That this is what John noticed. And then finally, please, y'all, don't ever draw a picture of Jesus like this either. Please don't draw a picture of Jesus in Revelation and actually have a sword coming out of His mouth. Please don't do that. But Josh, it says there's a, there's a sword coming out of His mouth. Yes, Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and powerful. And what? Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That not only is his voice cutting, that it cuts through and you can't ignore it like a trumpet. Not only is it powerful like many rushing waters, but it's sharp. That when Jesus speaks, have you ever had the experience of Jesus speaking and it cut you? Only every time if you're listening. That he does not pull punches. He's gentle, but so is a surgeon with a scalpel. That it can pierce and divide you. That John is experiencing all of this at once. And what is his reaction? To fall at his feet as one dead. Even though the countenance of Jesus' face is like the sun shining in His strength, it's bright, it's glorious, and John can't handle all of it. So he falls at His feet as one dead. Here's my question. Once you're seriously seeking God, are you prepared for what you're going to find? When you look for Him, have you considered... My mama used to tell me, be careful what you wish for. Because you just might get it. I'm not telling you not to seek God, but I'm telling you, seek God knowing who He is. Not this picture in your mind of, y'all, listen, He came as little baby Jesus. He's not little baby Jesus right now. He was crucified on the cross. He was maligned and spit on and beat and whipped and mocked. Nobody's mocking Him now. Nobody's laughing about Him now. That I would imagine the only way you would know Him as the crucified when you saw Him now is the fact that He still bears the scars. 
But he is the great king. He is the great high priest. He is the great prophet. He is the one whose voice pierces and is powerful and cuts to the division of even bone and marrow that his countenance shines like the sun. And we come in here singing a song. What time's dinner? Man, I did not want to get up and come here today. I did. I checked my box off. I did what I was supposed to do. Jesus ain't going to be mad at me now. Y'all, look at who showed up when John was seeking him. Does that seem like the kind of person who is worthy of that kind of response? And I'm not saying that accusatorily. I'm saying that, you know... I loved our singing. I heard everybody singing today. I'm not critiquing your singing or the way you worship today. That's not a comment on today. I'm saying personally in our lives, have you ever had a Sunday where you're just going through the motions? That there's no fire in your heart. There's no joy. There's no enthusiasm. There's no nothing. You're just doing it because it's what you're supposed to do. Y'all, Jesus is worth so much more than that. He's worthy of so much more than that. That he's bigger than that. Are we seeking our preferred dose of him? Are we seeking our preferred version of him? Do we think that we've got God figured out and that if he walked in this room right now, we'd pick up our conversation like we were old friends? That we would recognize him immediately? Oh, I think if he walked in, we would certainly recognize him immediately. But pick up talking, laughing like old friends? No, I think we would do exactly what John did. I think we would fall on our feet as one dead. This is actually a poem called Wilbur Reese. Uh, And I heard it years ago, and I think it's appropriate today. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, it was very obvious that this poem was written uh, in a congregation of, of white people who had a specific problem. That does not necessarily mean that's why I'm reading it here today, but I'm just saying you're going to hear a line and you're going to understand what he's trying to say within the greater point. Wilbur Reese wrote this poem called, I Would Like to Buy $3 Worth of God, Please. And the poem says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or to pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. That we run a danger of saying, God, I want just enough of you that I can be comfortable being the me that I am right now. I don't want enough of you that I realize who you are and I fall on my face as one dead because I finally got that you're bigger than I could ever possibly fathom. Luke chapter 9 verse 33, um, this is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then it happened as they were parting with him that... that, uh, Some of the disciples are up on the mountain of uh, Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain with Jesus and they see Jesus in His glory and they're getting ready to leave and then it happened as they were parting from Him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the final part is most important, not knowing what He said. (coughs) 
that Peter, <clears throat> Mr. Speak First and Ask Questions Later, is so discombobulated by the presence of the glorified Jesus that he's talking out of his mind. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't even know how to behave. John fell on his feet as one dead. Y'all, when you meet God, all bets are off. He's nothing like you've imagined Him. He is good. And I don't just mean a person who possesses the quality of good. He is good itself. And when you are in the presence of good, you know that you are neither good nor God more certainly than you do anywhere else. He is more glorious than you can fathom, more holy than you can anticipate, and is simultaneously more powerful and beautiful than you can conceive of. Call Him powerful. Call Him that. Call Him Jesus. Call Him the Ancient of Days. But whatever you do, don't call Jesus your co-pilot. He's bigger than that. When you seek God, seek Him accurately. Understand how big He is. And understand when we talk about the fact that this is the Jesus who died on a cross for you. That is who died for you. He's not just some other run-of-the-mill guy off the street that died for you. He is omnipotent, eternal God. That's how much He thought you were worth. So if you're pushing back from repentance, if you're pushing back from coming to meet Him, understand Him for who He is and then understand the lengths that He went for you. So seek Him actively. Seek Him accurately, knowing who He is. And then do you attentively seek God's presence? <clears throat> Finally, look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The only reason that John can even function right now is because at the end of our last passage, after he's fallen on his feet as one dead, Jesus reaches down and touches him with his right hand. Okay? If you look in your scripture, you'll see Jesus touches him with his right hand and says, get up. John, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. In other words, John, nobody's going to get you because nobody's going to get me. I'm the beginning and the end. I was alive and was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Ancient Greek, by the way, doesn't have quotation marks. So your Bible assumes that the amen right there is Jesus. I almost, in my mind, I don't read Jesus as saying that, amen. I read John as breaking in in the middle after Jesus says, I was alive and then died and then I'm alive again forevermore. I almost read that as John saying, amen. Yes. And then Jesus says he has the death, or he has the keys of Hades and death, and then tells him, John, I got something I want you to write. I don't want you to remember this off the top of your head. I don't want you to just talk about it with other people. I got a specific message for these specific churches that I want you to write down. Pay attention. <coughs> now consider this, church. If you had just seen 
what John had just seen. Would you be paying attention? Yes. Have you ever with your own physical eyes seen what John just saw? No. But you know what's interesting? What's in front of you is exactly what he intended you to hear. This, this book, by the way, not just Revelation, the same God inspired the rest of this book is inspired the book of Revelation, right? Okay. So, <clears throat> it's easy for John to pay attention right now because John has just seen the glorified Christ. Have you ever read your Bible and thought, oh, I've read this before. I get it. I got this. That's all right. We'll, we'll just skim it. Pay attention. This is the words of the glorified Christ. This is the word of God. And there's a lot of good that comes in paying attention and saying, what is it that you're trying to communicate to me? <clears throat> and Jesus tells him, let me tell you about these stars and these lampstands. Where had Jesus been holding the stars? In his what hand? Right hand. What hand was it that Jesus laid on John to reassure him? It's his right hand. Where'd the stars go? The reason that you don't see the stars anymore is because Jesus let John see them to make a point. That Jesus never does anything that is pointless. He doesn't waste words. He doesn't waste effort. He doesn't waste motion that he was holding those stars so that John would get a message. He was walking among the lampstands so that John would get a message. And he tells them, the stars you see in my right hand were the angels of the seven churches. Now y'all, I, I, neither me nor the majority of commentators, or at least most commentators, believe that Jesus is talking about actual angels. Because even though that is the Greek word angelos, which is where we get the English word angel, it has double meanings. It can mean angels, but it can also mean messengers. Or in the case of churches... Who do you think would be the messenger of a church? It's pastor. That he's looking at John and saying, John, I need you to let these pastors know that I'm holding them in my right hand. And John, do you see these lampstands? I need you to let these churches know that I'm walking in their midst. That I'm among them in their persecution. I'm among them in their tribulation. I'm among them as they are waiting on my patience. I'm among them as they are enduring and fighting the good fight. And that their leaders, the ones that they're afraid are going to get snatched up and yanked out of their house. Like Pastor Wang Yi in China that we read about. I just want you to remember, even though they might be in the hands of the Roman government. Even though they might be in the hands of the Iranian government. Even though they might be in the hands of the Chinese government. Even though they might be in the hands of whatever else government. Guess whose hand they are ultimately in? They're in mine. And even though he's talking about these specific churches right then, seven is also a symbol of totality and completeness, meaning guess who else Jesus is walking amongst? He's not just walking amongst those seven churches in Asia Minor. He's walking amongst our churches. He wasn't just holding those messengers in his hand. Y'all, he's holding me. He's holding every single one of y'all. 
And if John had not been paying attention to Jesus, he wouldn't have heard that. If John had not been paying attention to Jesus, he wouldn't have gotten encouraged like that. If John had not been paying attention to Jesus, he wouldn't have heard what Jesus had for him when Jesus had that for him. Are you paying attention? Are you attentively seeking His presence? When you came here today, did you come actively seeking His presence or were you just going through the motions? When you came here today, did you come accurately seeking His presence or did you think of Him just as, oh, it's just Jesus. 